Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, uh, we're getting towards the end of April, and, you know, one of the, one of the sub-themes of this episode is going to be whether Kate and I get through the episode without having a sneezing fit or a joint sneezing fit, even though we're, we're hundreds of miles apart. Uh, I think everybody, at least, I don't know what it is in the rest of the country, but at least in the Northeast and the East Coast, uh, allergies are are, uh, are pretty bad. So uh, if you are a fellow sufferer, uh, we salute you. Uh, so that's just a little thing where I just wanted to wanted to mention in case in case you wonder as the, as the episode goes by, uh, we've got a lot to discuss. We have a uh, big speech uh, this evening uh, by President Biden. You know, it's funny. I almost I almost caught myself calling him Vice President <laughs> Biden. I'm still sort of there's I don't know I don't know if you have this, but I still. Um, you know, we're only three months in, but I still have moments where I'm like, wow, Joe Biden's president. Didn't expect that. I don't mean I didn't expect it like, you know, uh, last October or something like that. I probably, I think in retrospect, I probably expected it a little more confidently (laughs) than I should have expected it. Uh, I just mean more over the course of the last, uh, you know, in some ways over the course of the last half century, but but really over the course of the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, As you know, uh, Biden ran for president in 2008. Uh, It kind of went nowhere. Um, That was his that was his second full run at it. He he had the other run, I believe in 1988, where he started with um, a lot of fanfare. You know, he was, I think, in his mid 40s at the time, more or less, something like that. You know, young guy, uh, you know, kind of one of these people who, who people had been expecting to run for president for a long time. And uh, it didn't go well. And he had this, 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 plagiarism scandal that I I have always thought was basically bogus. Political speeches are copied right and left. And he was largely dinged for the fact that he gave a speech about his being, you know, the first member of his family to uh, get a university education. And this guy, this guy, Neil Kinnock, who was, uh, you know, ages and ages ago, the head of the Labor Party or the uh, head of the Labor Party, never prime minister uh, to his great chagrin in, in the UK, had given a, a similar speech. And it was clear that the speech sort of patterned off that, but it was true for both of them. So, that was always kind of uh, bogus. And then he had this kind of health crisis afterwards. I, I don't remember exactly, but uh, I think he had some sort of, you know, kind of brain bleed or something like that. Um, I don't remember all the details, uh, but, uh, y- you know, and then he kind of went back to being a, a senator. And uh, the thing that is maybe not at the front of our recollection now is that one of the reasons Barack Obama chose Joe Biden, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons was because it seemed clear that he was too old and too unsuccessful in his earlier presidential shots, but mainly too old to have any future presidential ambitions. So you have someone who can just focus on being vice president. They're not kind of angling and trying to kind of, you know, collect chits and stuff to be president after, you know, to run for president after you're president and all that kind of stuff. They just focus on you. 
And that was actually uh, a model that was in some ways uh, pioneered by President Bush with Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney was older. He had, uh, you know, he had already had a few heart attacks, uh, even as a as, even as a very young man. So he was never going. You know, the idea was he's never going to run for president. He can just vote, fo- you know, uh, focus on being vice president. And often during Obama's presidency, Biden kind of leaned into this comic relief aspect of his personality as a, not to say he wasn't doing a lot of stuff in the background and a lot of serious stuff, but he kind of played that role, right? Uncle Joe, good guy, you know, got the aviator glasses, all that kind of, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it's just remarkable how things uh, evolve. And here we are. And I, you know, I was on a, uh, was on another show yesterday. I was talking about this, that, it, it's it's really the you know the last thing that we that one could have uh, expected almost at any point in Joe Biden's career either the young you know the young up and coming Joe Biden the sort of the old Joe Biden none of those Joe Bidens were someone who you'd expect oh he's gonna he's gonna become president and make a go at being kind of like an FDR LBJ you know sort of like big government, transformative, liberal agenda thing. That was like, you could imagine a lot of things, but that was not one of them ever. And that's not because Biden's so conservative. I think that this whole idea that that got going in the 2020 primary campaign, that Biden's this big conservative or something, conservative Democrat, even moderate Democrat, even that wasn't really true. Biden, um, you know, his whole, his whole political career, is just a consensus Democrat consensus, liberal Democrat, moderate liberal Democrat, something like that, you know, kind of going to be where the party is, wherever it is. That's kind of, you know, that that's that's kind of his thing. So we have this speech tonight, and that's uh, one of the things that we are uh, going to talk about. We're also going to we're going to make another stab at making sense of what political moment we're in here. And one of the things we're going to talk about is you know, kind of where are Republicans? Yes, they're kind of opposing everything. Um, although there's a little talk now that they're having some kind of negotiations about, you know, sort of ha- the hard infrastructure part of the next part of the legislative agenda. I mean, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Who knows? Um, but they seem, you know, they're kind of trying different culture war things on for size. And in general, it kind of doesn't seem to be going much of anywhere. Um, and, you know, Biden's uh, Biden's popularity, by historical standards, his popularity has been quite low for a newly inaugurated president. But in an era of extreme polarization, it's been, it's been fairly robust, you know, consistently over 50%, 52%, 54%, you know, something like that. Kind of the it, it's it's been basically the inverse of President Trump's, especially in the beginning of his presidency. But who are we kidding? The the, the beginning of his presidency was the, the whole thing was the same. You know, pretty much it is remarkable the extent to which President Trump consistently had maybe you know forty two percent public support and. 52, 53%, you know, kind of low 40s support, low 50s opposition. And that kind of wobbled around here and there. Uh, You had that period, I guess it was maybe in the second half of 2017, you know, where he kind of got down into the high 30s for a bit. And, uh, you know, he cratered after uh, he tried to overthrow the government at the end. But you know that kind of makes sense. But basically, very consistent, and 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 Biden is the inverse of that. So we're gonna we're gonna get into all those things. We're also gonna this is the second episode where, I uh, pardon me, like I said, my allergies are killing me here. Uh, this is second second episode. Where we're gonna answer uh, your questions. So here's the thing. Remember, get your questions in. 
Seriously, what the hell? <laughs> we had like a ton of questions first episode, but I guess we didn't make clear this is an ongoing feature. So like the, you know, not a lot of questions this time. Seriously, send in your questions. We want to hear what what uh, what you're thinking about, what you would like to hear us discuss, uh, questions that you would like to hear us answer, all that good stuff. Uh, before we get into the rest, it's spring. You can see, you can you can tell that it's spring because I'm sniffling because it's uh, allergies and all that kind of stuff. But one day it just became spring, and suddenly we're doing uh, spring stuff. That means tailgates, picnics, camping, and cold brew iced coffee. Grady's all-in-one cold brew kit makes 36 servings of gourmet New Orleans-style coffee for less than a buck a cup. Just add water and store it in your fridge for cold brewed iced coffee you'll want to sip all spring. And to be sure to take some on your next vacation so you never have to worry about missing your morning brew. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate. So so what are we what are we talking about? Well, coming at you silky smooth with my new audio setup. But yeah, so we're talking about this week there has been an immense explosion of right-wing nonsense. Um all of it basically fabricated and much of it kind of a good window into how alarmingly fast uh, disinformation spreads throughout the right wing, uh, you know, kind of media ecosystem. Um, going from one, you know, in, in two of these cases, one, you know, really shoddy, slapdash, not really reported article leaps to Fox News, leaps from Fox News to right wing radio and all the different tentacles of the Fox News kind of empire. And didn't didn't the I guess we're talking about the Kamala Harris uh non, you know, uh children's mm-hmm. book thing. And that started at the post. Right. So kind of ricocheting from different uh nodes of the of the Murdoch right. empire. Right. And then yeah. And then the the um fake red meat ban and you know all kind of I can run through both of these scandals for people who aren't up on them, but that started uh, at the Daily Mail, which is a British tabloid. So those those two cases were very parallel and kind of the seed was planted, picked up by Fox, dispersed through Fox, you know, kind of like blood cells and veins right into the Twitter feeds of, you know, Lauren Boebert and Don Trump Jr., uh, you know. And- so, so let me ask on the on the on the children's book mm-hmm. thing. This was kind of, you know, the the thing with meat, uh, most climate people will tell you that to confront the climate crisis, we need to seriously rejigger how much of the planet is dedicated to raising cows to kill them really quickly so we can all have hamburgers. There's all sorts of stuff there. So, so in that case, the idea that our diets may need to change uh because of climate change, it's not taken out of nowhere. It's it, they made this up, but it's the whole like concept is isn't from nowhere. And in in this case of the uh, of the of the Kamala Harris children's book, this really was, as far as I can tell, just out of you know made up out of whole cloth. And the funny thing was to me, I mean, I'm I consider myself pretty plugged in, and I'm way too plugged into Twitter. Like I find myself in a kind of a fugue state like 10 times a day just on Twitter. Like what am I doing here? Like how am I still on Twitter? What am I doing? But that was a case where I only found out about it after the first I heard was how it had been debunked. <laughs> yeah. Like it it was so quick. It was such a quick cycle. I don't even know how how long it was kind of a live thing before. And that was a case where, it, you know, a, a lot of these things with right-wing media, they come out, they get debunked on, you know, on factcheck.org or, you know, uh, Washington, that Kessler guy on Washington Post gives it some Pinocchios, but it's never like recanted in the original sources, it just kind of it, it just sort of becomes part of the ambient air of of, of disinformation. But this one had a really quick half life. So walk yeah. us through what did, what did the original thing okay, say? Okay, so we'll start with the the Harris book thing. So what happened there is a photographer who is like a stringer for Reuters took a picture at this uh, migrant child intake center in Long Beach, California. 
And one of those pictures had a children's book that Harris wrote some time back uh, in kind of in the pile of stuff. And so the New York Post takes that picture and baselessly concludes that the welcome kits that these children are getting have all had a copy of her book slipped into them, despite the fact this is based on a picture of one book at this site. So then Fox News picks it up, covers it heavily, same way as the New York Post, you know, no, no fact checking, nothing like that. And, you know, sure enough, soon, soon we have Ronna McDaniel, Tom Cotton, you know, kind of tweeting their outrage about this. And then, you know, meanwhile, uh, actual news outlets are doing the work of asking Long Beach officials, is this true? And they said exactly one copy of this book got donated in like a citywide donation drive for people to give things to these children. And then, you know, weird enough. And then it gets even crazier because the New York Post takes down this article, no correction, no retraction, you know, and just for our listeners, you know, I'm that's just that's very outside the bounds of journalistic practice. You know, you don't just get to mess up and be like, oh, race, 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 hope nobody notices. So they rip down the article. Fox News does this very gentle correction on air when they apologize for it. They implied that there were more books than one, which they didn't imply it. You know, they stated it outright. Um, and their kind of online corresponding article with the coverage they had done on the network that stayed up and untouched. So then we have the original article from the New York Post is put back up with an author's note, kind of clarifying the mistake. And then you have the reporter who wrote that New York Post article tweets that she resigned because she was, you know, quote, forced into writing the article and she didn't push back hard enough. And that was the final straw for her. Um, and then Fox, at this point, Fox adds a correction to their online article where they say the implied thing and says they also sneak in. There is at least one copy of Harris's book at the, at the site, at least one, without any proof that there are multiple copies and having the officials say there was one. So, right. yeah. Right, right. So, and, and you know, one of the things that always strikes me about this is that you know, there's uh, many years ago now, there was the, the I think Jason Blair was his name, a big scandal at the Times where one of their kind of like, you know, kind of hotshot up and coming reporters was exposed of just having written numerous fake articles, right? Just or or at least articles about news stories with quotes from people who didn't exist, uh, you know, reporting on the scene from places that he wasn't just you know, kind of every news organization's and editor's worst nightmare. It was, it was a big, big scandal. Um, and different news organizations have these scandals. These things happen. And one of the things that is so striking is that that never happens when it is a Fox News or New York Post or almost anywhere in the right-wing media ecosystem. It just, it, it just doesn't matter. Basically, it, it, it just literally doesn't matter. And I think the reason it doesn't matter is that it does not contradict anyone's assumptions. There is this tacit common understanding on the right and left about what these organizations are, that they're basically kind of propaganda organizations. So if you kind of like if you're, you know, owning the libs a little with kind of like a bogus story, like, OK, yeah, take, you know, put up a, a, a a correction or something like that, but it doesn't it doesn't change anybody's perceptions. Why should it? I mean, that's what the New York Post is. The New York half the stuff the New York Post publishes is is like that. I mean, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but not much, right? Um, and the same with Fox News, and it's it, it's very telling. I mean, if there was if you had something that was just completely based on nothing and fabricated and got taken down at like the Times or the Post or, you know, the Washington Post or any legitimate news organization, there would be, a, you know, a ton of media stories about it, navel gazing, and, you know, the reporter would be canned and there would be this and that and the other. There's just, there's just, 
there's just none of that because again, it doesn't change anybody's perceptions. We know those. And and I, I saw someone said to me when I was saying this uh, today, oh, well, you know, people on the right, they definitely think those are legitimate news organizations. They think they're the best, the only ones telling the truth. And that's kind of true in the sense that, yes, a lot of conservatives say, oh, I only listen to Fox News. It's the only place that's really telling us the truth. But people on the right, the sort of um, Trumpian right, the revanchist right, don't have the same understandings of what a news organization is as Democrats, kind of people who aren't from that from that world. Um, so we have that. So what are the other yeah, two? I, we have we have that. We have the. I meat do want thing. to say one thing on on this story first, which is well, two things. One of which I think I think you're totally right that. Uh, People know that Fox News does not hold itself to the same kind of rigorous journalistic standards as CNN. But the problem with that is, even if people know that, that's not how it's treated. I mean, Fox News has its seat in the White House briefing room. Like when you say the roundup of networks, you know, you say NBC, ABC, Fox News, and it's constantly kind of lumped in with these other groups. And you have other prominent reporters, especially um, kind of in more the broadcast journalism world, you know, stand by Fox News reporters when they're snubbed or, uh, you know, excluded from events and everything. And it's this completely damaging, I think, double standard where it's like Fox gets to have the gravitas of a serious news outlet or, you know, network without having to do the due diligence that actual journalists have to do and without doing anything more than these, you know, kind of gentle, you know, half-assed apologies on air where they say, oh, so sorry if we may have implied something that led to this right-wing outrage cyclone for the last few days that we absolutely meant to trigger. Anyway, on to the next thing. And, you know, it's, I think it's part of what makes Fox News so damaging is because it, gets to stand on the same pedestal with the other uh, with the other networks, but doesn't hold itself to any kind of fact-checking standard. Um, and then the other piece of this is more of a personal thing, but to me, the hardest part about being a reporter is your mistakes are so public. And not only that, but now, especially since the Trump era, you have a really rabid group of people who are rooting for you to make a mistake, who are eager to kind of flay you online and to say, look, fake news, when you even if it's an, an, you know, an honest mistake that you made and corrected and everything like that. And those people have been fomented by Fox News that makes doesn't even make mistakes that just happily peddles disinformation as news and then still pretends to be a serious outlet, you know, so it's it's this weird cycle that's been happening. Um, and some of that, those same dynamics uh, apply as well to the to the meat ban story, which I can uh, run us down, give us an outline of. So this seed of disinformation started late last week when the Daily Mail, a British tabloid, ran a story where they decided to fill in the holes of what we don't know about Biden's climate change plan yet, because he hasn't announced it. We've gotten some tidbits. The White House put out a fact sheet. Um, but we haven't gotten the comprehensive thing. So the Daily Mail runs a story that is essentially, here's what could be in the plan, and then picked things that were specifically likely to rile people up, you know, right-wing people up and get them mad. And one of the things they said is it could entail a dietary shift. And then they found this study done by uh, researchers at the University of Michigan um, in 2020 where these guys ran different test scenarios to see what kind of dietary shifts would have the biggest effects on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And in one of those scenarios, they tested dropping meat co- beef consumption by 90% and then other animal food products by 50%. And they found that that halved the amount of uh, greenhouse commis- emissions connected to our diets. So the Daily Mail basically plucks out the 90% which is, again, just one of the scenarios in this hypothetical test thing that I spoke to the researchers and they told me this was not intended to be a policy proposal. This is just what we do, you know? So they pluck out the 90% and they say, Biden's plan could entail a 90% drop in beef consumption, which they calculated out to mean one 
average sized hamburger a month. So that's their article. Fox News, less than about 12 hours later, Fox News found the story, is running it, has a graphic up where they have, it says requirements for Biden's climate plan, and then says 90% drop in beef consumption, one hamburger a month. And then you have, you know, various Fox News hosts being like, get ready, your 4th of July is going to suck. Like, you might as well just have Brussels sprouts. You can't have any meat, you know? And it was days of that, days of that, with that completely just wrong graphic. And then the first time they walk it back at all is not till Monday when John Roberts, one of their show hosts, again, does this very gentle correction on air when they're like, oh, we're sorry if we gave anyone the idea that X, Y, Z. First of all, that correction was due, was connected to a segment that was from Friday. So clearly not a lot of urgency in correcting that stuff. Um, but again, it, it wasn't implied. It wasn't, we're sorry if we gave anyone the impression. It stated outright just incorrect information, which then got into the hands of Lauren Boebert and Don Jr., who tweeted about it furiously and, you know, completely meshed this, this study and the climate change, which hasn't been climate change plan, which hasn't been released yet. And then it happened just so fast, you know, over the course of like two or three days, it went from completely made up Daily Mail story to all over the right wing kind of Internet spaces. I I think, you know, one thing that, again, going back to this point about different standards that, you know, legitimate, I mean, legitimate journalists make make mistakes. It's sort of in the nature of journalism, you make mistakes It's an iterative process. Um, But in legitimate journalism, you have, you know, there's a process, you have to correct it, and you have to publicly correct it. And that, you know, that process of doing legitimate journalism becomes the evidence point about the fake news. And the fact that the New York Posts and the Fox Newses and stuff don't really do that, or sort of, you know, <clears throat> say, oh, well, you know, look, maybe, maybe, you know, kind of sorry if you were offended, sorry <laughs> if you misunderstood, sort of, you know, kind of corrections. It perpetuates this idea, well, Fox News doesn't seem to make any, you know, any mistakes because we see other news organizations having to do corrections all the time and Fox doesn't. So they must, you know, they, they, they must be, uh, they must be rock solid. Uh-huh. It's just that it's, it's a different, it's a different idea of what, news media is and these things you know yes there's they are um uh they are gradations at some level but there's some basic basic differences and you know the other it's funny there there is a i frequently see there is a dialogue within legitimate journalism that each time there is some mistaken story some big retraction some you know something that someone gets wrong there's this, um, you know, sort of avalanche of of uh, self-flagellating to the to you know to the extent this is you know this is going to give more even more you know put more wind in the sails of people who think we're all fake news. We've got to you know we wonder why so few people trust the press. We wonder this. We wonder that. Look, people make mistakes. They need to correct their mistakes. That's just that's just what journalism is. It's an iterative process. You know, scientists make mistakes all the time. In the sense, you have one theory, then it's disproven by new studies. Right? It it is um, it is you know any working journalist will tell you they live in fear of getting something wrong. But it is also kind of part of the. It's an iterative process, and I really hate that that self-flagellating because the fact that that someone gets a story wrong that's not why people on the right are attacking journalists and calling you know cnn fake news and stuff like that that is an ideological thing about controlling the production of truth for lack of a better word it is not it it really has nothing to do with the fact that journalists get things wrong journalists have always gotten things wrong you know, and and so there's just a the, the idea that y- you have lack of trust in journalism, especially on the right, is an ideological thing. It's it's not a measure of you know the batting average 
of elite journalism. It's just not. They're two, they're really two separate things. And I and I wish that uh, I wish that the journalistic fraternity, maybe not a great word, the journalistic community um, would be a little more self confident about that and a little more aggressive in making its own case because you you get led around by people who are who are who are not arguing in good faith i think that's exactly right and i think that's also why i time for not fox news to kind of be kicked out of the club because there are just guidelines of what you have to do if you're a journalist and if Fox News was going to run that story before they ran it on air for millions of viewers, it is incumbent upon them to check the Daily Mail's reporting, especially because it, it wasn't even really reporting. It wasn't sourced anything. And, you know, I talked to the researchers behind the study that got pulled into this, and they told me the first time they heard anything about this was Sunday morning when they got contacted by a fact checker from CNN. So Fox News had run this story for about four days without talking to them, without, you know, checking with the White House. Is this part of the climate change? Just smacked it into a graphic and sent it up on their screens. And, you know, if they're going to operate like that, fine. But I wish that journalists, you know, those of us who actually do our due diligence, you know, take accountability from our mistakes, but also do kind of the the work on the front end to make sure we're not slapping up stuff that's wrong would just stop agreeing to let them be part of the group because I just think it it gives them so much power that they get to be both a legitimate news organization that does none of the hard part of being a news organization and more so willfully feeds their viewers disinformation that they know will have an emotional resonance and get them really mad and be a point of opposition against a president they don't like. I don't know how much people remember this or uh, sort of, you know, before your time as an, uh, as an adult, Kate, that uh, in the, at the beginning of the Obama administration, so going on 15 years ago now, I guess, I, you know, 13 years ago, um, the Obama crew made an effort to kind of, I, I don't think they were going to take Fox's credentials, but they, they, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misremembering that. I, I think it was more, they made an effort to stigmatize Fox in the context of like the press briefings and stuff like that to not, um, not call on Fox kind of, kind of, um, signal that we don't think you're a legit, you know, you may have press credentials, but we don't think you're on an equal footing as real news organizations. We think you are basically a, a propaganda outfit with some news components. And as I think you you alluded to, the there was massive pushback from all the other broadcast news. Like, you know, kind of a real sense of solidarity. You know, you're picking on Fox and stuff like this. And you know, in, in the in the in the aftermath of what happened under President Trump. Um, of all of his stuff, stigmatizing news, the lying press, the fake news, all that kind of stuff. I get where you don't want the people in political power sort of deciding who is press and who is not um, based on, you know, ideology, kind of anything. You want it to be very hands-off. So I, I, you know, I don't think it would be a good idea to like, you know, kind of pull their press credentials or something like that, even though I don't think they really deserve to be there on an equal footing. Uh, it's just, you, you, that's just not, that's just not a great idea um, for a number of reasons. But I don't see any, pro, I, I don't see the need or even the wisdom of pretending that Fox is, is another news organization. It's just different. It's really different. And it, um, you know, even, you know, this sense of like, well, you know, let's have both sides. There's CNN and there's Fox. And and again, I'm not going to, it's not that I want to be here like, oh, CNN, you know, the best news organization now, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's just news organization makes mistakes, does good stuff, does bad stuff, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something, it's something very basic about our contemporary news 
ecosystem. Although, you know, one thing I will say, and I think it, it's, it's, it's always really important to come back to, is that people people believe things that are lies mostly because they want to believe them anybody with their eyes open if you are a if if you are a someone who has conservative politics um but actually thinks about news in you know in some sense as actual news it's not a secret that fox peddles all sorts of crap that is either um, very tendentious or disingenuous or just a lot of time fake, right? And, you know, we, we, we see a lot of, again, a lot of sort of, you know, kind of good government media studies types like, oh, we need to, we need to you know, work on people's media literacy and, and the threat of disinformation. And these, these things, the threat of disinformation is, is, is real. But again, people watch Fox News consume Fox News, believe Fox News, largely because they want to. They want, at, at a basic level, they want to be told things that are not true. Or they want to be told things that um, that confirm their beliefs. And whether they're true or not is is uh you know is 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 fine print and 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 a negotiable thing. And that that's 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 uh that's that's a tough thing for a society to to deal with. I mean, we all have that to some extent. We are all it is in the nature of it is in the nature of things that we as humans we are looking for things that that confirm our worldview. That is a that is a natural uh human tendency. But we are also kind of in the modern world wanting to challenge that with reality. Um and that doesn't that doesn't that is not something that uh, is built into the contemporary American right. And it's not something that CNN doing a better job, never making a mistake is going to change. That's not what it's about. It is, it is something deeply ideological and in many ways part and parcel with the broader authoritarian trend in American political culture. I think that's right. And I think the fact that this week in particular, we've seen these kind of right wing outrage scandals be really just kind of fully imaginary, you know, not like being mad over, you know, Biden's handling of the border. That's something that I think most people in good faith would say, well, that's that's pretty hypocritical. You know, you didn't care about it under Trump. All those things are valid, but at least it's it's rooted in reality. Like there is you know, obviously our immigration system is plagued with problems. But I think the fact that this week in particular, we've seen really just completely fabricated things to be mad about also just shows that when you've crafted yourself into the party of opposition and nothing but opposition for, I don't know, like at least a decade now, there's just not that much other stuff to take up your time. And as we've talked about on the pod before, the difficulty Republicans have had in a villainizing uh, Biden in general and be finding kind of a good hooky way to object to his legislating or, you know, Democrats legislating so far has kind of left them really scrambling for things to convey to their audience that will get this like the anger and the grievance and the emotional resonance that keeps these people coming back for more because oh my God, your your life is under threat from X, Y, Z. And here's all the things you have to be afraid of. And that's what Fox runs on, you know, that's what right. they need. And I just think this week is such a good kind of microcosm and how they've really struggled to do that uh, during the, the Biden administration and how, you know, they're, they're being mad about a fake meat ban and a fake book dispersal instead of the infrastructure plan because they just they're really struggling in figuring a way to, make that seem really scary. Yeah, it, it it it's funny and we we talked about this off, you know, off air that it's a little hard for me to get a handle on because on the one hand, because of how Biden has pitched this stuff, you know, no apologies. 
We're not going to talk. We're not going to get worried about the debt. We're not going to worry about this. I'm going to spend a ton of money and I'm going to rebuild all the roads and, you know, just just very frontal and aggressive. Um, that's one part of it. The country is ideologically in a different place or at least or at least the center left and, and the center of, of the U.S. politically is in a different place. The right is further right, but I'm not sure you'd say the left is further left. It, you know, basically, for, there's a lot of different reasons why Republicans have struggled to, you know, they kind of, they didn't vote for the relief plan, but at, at a basic level, they just kind of said, uh, it's too big and we obviously we're never going to vote for it, so whatever, and kind of move on, right? They, they, they're, they're, they, didn't, they didn't seem to get much traction with with the infrastructure bill they have focused largely on oh a lot of it isn't really infrastructure it's it's taking care of your grandparents you know home care and caring economy and uh you know there's a you can certainly argue that you know uh, uh home care for the elderly is certainly not tr- traditionally what people mean by infrastructure but like whatever, it's just a word, right? You kind of are you do sort of you need to make some uh, you need to make some argument on the merits, and um, you know one thing people have brought up is like you know it's are you really demonizing you know funding taking care of people with dementia? Like oh that's terrifying, you know, and 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 that is one of that's one of these things that I mean first of all it is a lot of money, it is a in many ways, a new federal responsibility, proposed federal responsibility, but it is also something that really cuts across the society. Lots of people of all political stripes have elderly relatives, and, and again, it's not only elderly. I mean, some people need need care who are not who are relatively young, but have various physical ailments. Blah 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 blah. But it's not that only liberals have grandparents who have advanced, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's or all these kind of things and, and need care and all that. So, so it's a little hard to, uh, it, it's a little hard to demonize. And so they're kind of operating on this, on this technicality. Well, it's not infrastructure. And I mean, like, okay, I mean, I guess like, who cares? Like, fine. Don't call it infrastructure. Do you want to pay for it or not? At the same time, I keep going back to uh, 2009 and the beginning of the Obama administration. And Obama did a lot of stuff that was very different. It was also a different political moment, um, although similar in some ways, coming out of a massive public crisis of all sorts of dimensions. And there was a similar sense of Republicans just coming up with all sorts of nonsensical stuff, you know, death panels. And I remember our folks at TPM, a lot of the society collectively saying, oh my God, these guys are just going off the deep end. It's all, you know, all this nonsense. And yet their oppositionism paid off big time in 2010. And I don't, you know, it, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to, how to disentangle those things because at some level, um, the country was still kind of a wreck in 2010. They had passed Obamacare, but you didn't have Obamacare. One of the stupidest things they did with Obamacare that I think Democrats will never make this mistake again, it's let's, let's pass something that is very demagogable, that there's, there's new taxes for, there's new regulations for, but you won't actually get any, any, any low-cost health care until like five years from now. Which is like totally insane. Like let's let's set it up so we can lose a few elections before anybody finds out what we're even talking about. It wasn't actually five years, but it was a few years. Kind of kind of crazy stuff. So it's hard to it, it's um it's hard to know, especially because we sort of assume that uh the the twenty twenty two midterm is not going to be great for Democrats. Maybe we're wrong, but I think that's at least everybody's kind of you know default assumption so it's a little you know uh republicans can often sort of uh you know kind of preach nonsense all the way to electoral victory and 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 who knows but it does but it does seem basically different now than i at least remember it uh 12 years ago yeah i think a piece of that too is the the subset of republicans who 
at least are invested in looking like they're they have an ideology ideological commitment has just shrunk so much and i think you can see that especially with um with infrastructure josh kavinsky and i did kind of a series of articles about uh, Republicans unveiling their counter proposal to Biden's infrastructure plan. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crafted to be dead on arrival. You know, it's like they've removed almost every conceivable way to pay for it because they refuse to, you know, refuse taxes and refuse to do any deficit spending, which leaves you with what exactly, you know, their idea is kind of like, well, not all the money has been spent from CARES and XYZ, and we can repurpose that and tax the people who use the infrastructure is a phrase they keep saying, even though when people follow up and are like, how do you tax people for using pipes? You know, there tend not to be a lot of answers for that. But that kind of, it shows you how much that contingent has shrunk because you have, you know, Romney and like Shelley Moore Capito and those types who are putting that together but Republicans have hardly even talked about it since they unveiled it, you know? And, and Capito was kind of frank with reporters where she, she had a quote that was along the lines of, you know, we don't put anything on the table and shame on us, you know, which I think just kind of encapsulated that this is a... Like we need a placeholder right, to, to... Right. Right. And I think this encapsulated the idea that for this small group of Republican senators, like there is a, there is a sense of embarrassment if they don't counter with anything if they don't have any legislation at all to point to even though what they put out was essentially like a bullet pointed list and you know was described as like a conceptual document a beginning document a way to enter negotiations kind of thing so it's you know it's not anything real but it does show that at least these people feel a sense of shame or feel not totally comfortable with the idea of just objecting to the Democrats' plan for objection's sake, obstructing for obstruction's sake. But that group is so small and not at all kind of what the bulk of the caucus has been talking about, even in the week since they've unveiled it. Yeah, the the one thing, again, and I I have written a number of posts on the site, both expressing my own uncertainty and, and kind of engaging with readers' ideas about this, trying to trying to get a handle of what this politics, what this 2021 politics is about, how it functions, what the dynamics are, what the issues are. And the one thing I am struck by is there is pretty little ideological counter to what Biden is trying to do. Basically saying, uh, we need to give people more money, you know, we need to give sort of middle class uh, working poor people more money and we need to rebuild everything. And that's going to cost a ton of money. And basically, we're not really going to worry about adding to the federal debt. Republicans have not really made much of a an argument against those core points. And some of that is because spent a ton of money under under Trump uh, sent out checks. Uh, some of it's that. I think some of it is a a general sense that has that has become more deep seated and less challenged. That wow, everything's falling apart. And and I think this comes from a lot of different. And I I even imagine at some level it has been it this sense has been deepened by COVID, in the sense that. You know, we went into this, and yes, Trump was a disaster, and made it much worse than it than it had to be. But I think it has had a big impact on the national psyche. Sort of like, what the fuck? They've got no COVID in Taiwan, and and like, you know, China got got a handle on this pretty quickly, and Europe at various points was doing better than we are now. There's a lot of different moving parts to that, right? Obviously, with China, you have a, a political culture that allows a a uh, you know coercion in a, in ways that is never going to fly in the United States. But I do think that has sort of pierced this sense of like, yeah, we're America, we're rich, we know how to do stuff. We're gonna you know we're gonna we're gonna lead the way. I think that that. That really kind of impacted people. And and certainly over the years, 
I hear, you know, one of the things people see a lot is that they see American airports and they go to foreign airports. And I cannot tell you how many people, it's just the kind of a thing people discuss. More affluent people, since it's people who are doing a lot of foreign travel, of like, wow, why is our stuff so, like, so much more broken down? Like, aren't we the richest country in the world? All that kind of stuff. So I think I think the 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 premises of what Biden is trying to do, yes, they're opposing it all, but it, it's not a. It's very different from what the '90s were like, or the aughts were like, or even the the teens were like, and um, I think that's you know that's one reason why you kind of you're seeing. You know this the 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 meat thing, uh, a lot of this stuff about climate. You know, climate has culture war dimensions to it. They're going to take away my hamburger, right? They're going to take away my car. All this kind of stuff. I'm not going to be able to do this or that or the other. Culture war is 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 that's their that's their sweet spot. They're trying to kind of get it there, but you know, it's it's a it's a new it's a new time, and and uh, I don't think they have a handle on it. And I. I I don't really have a handle on it myself. Yeah, so we're growing a bit short on time. So let's switch over and talk a little bit about Biden's speech tonight, which is basically a State of the Union, even though it's not called that. It's just called a joint address to Congress. Um, You know, kind of his first major speech of his presidency. Presidents usually deliver this earlier in their first term, kind of still in the inauguration afterglow. Um, But, you know, the fact that Biden has kind of pushed it down the road a bit both related to the pandemic and now, you know, might not be such a bad thing because he can kind of celebrate the stuff he's gotten done already instead of it just being a, you know, here's my plans and promises kind of speech. So it's going to look a little different. Really. Is that is that the reason why why it was delayed since, you know, Democrats control Congress? They could have had this a week in. Is the idea that it just there was nothing to be achieved by coming in in a week, you know, a week in and saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to try to do a lot of great stuff on covid Let's see what let's see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to say because Democrats were very much doing the whole we're busy trying to pass climate relief right now. You know, we'll get the speeches when we get to speeches. So, yeah, hard to say what the what the kind of behind right, the right. scenes thinking was. But, yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, but it's going to be very small. We're only going to have about 200 people in attendance. Usually there are over a thousand uh, you know, they didn't even need a designated survivor because most of the cabinet is not going to be there. We're probably only going to have John Roberts of the right. of the Supreme Court bunch. Um, and, so, you know, some the Biden administration has been leaking some things that he's going to talk about tonight. He's going to celebrate the COVID milestones and, you know, the vaccination rates, and everything like that. But the heart of the speech is going to be the official unveiling of the American Families Plan, which is the care for the human infrastructure piece of his infrastructure package, the kind of the the partner to the jobs and physical infrastructure plan that he unveiled the very end of March. Um, so this is kind of the complement to that. And a lot of the speech will be, you know, getting the American people familiar with what he's proposing to do, how he's proposing to pay for it. Uh, the, the kind of human infrastructure piece is going to be he wants to pay for it by solely taxing rich people and um, beefing up IRS, uh, IRS is a budget to go after tax evaders. And then you have the jobs piece is going to be primarily funded by uh, raising corporate tax rates. So those are the two kind of pillars of his speech tonight. And, and, and basically, again, we were talking about this off the air, that what they seem to be doing now is, this is all this is all stuff that was sort of under the infrastructure rubric originally and now they have sort of broken up you know sort of hard infrastructure you know roads broadband i guess and then caring economy uh and they you know they each have their own name now um so that i i guess i'm not sure it's a concession to republicans but a concession to some in in the in the democratic caucus who want that now we've seen in the in just the last couple days, there have been a few reports that there are these, uh, you know, kind of negotiations with Republicans going on in the background about the hard infrastructure side, and the Republicans at least saying, "Hey, you know, seems like we're making some progress." And so I guess 
what at least maybe some moderate Democrats want is the idea that you have a kind of a hard infrastructure only bill that would probably be smaller than proposed. But the idea at least is that it would get bipartisan support. And then the Democrats do the caring economy thing alone later, presumably using reconciliation. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Now, of course, the problem with that is if you think about even with a smaller, hard infrastructure bill to go through regular order, you need 10 Republicans. And we've talked about that before. Like, there really just aren't 10 Republican senators who can be called moderate in any sense of the word, you know, so you're really, I think, putting a lot of eggs in the basket of Republicans are going to act like their predecessors and consider infrastructure a bipartisan issue, which seems a bit optimistic given all that we've seen, which is why I think there is some Democratic intention about how to do this. And there are some Democrats as prominent as Dick Durbin, who's, you know, Schumer's right hand man, saying we should do this all together, put it all in one package with, you know, the unsaid, you know, uh, kind of meaning behind that being we're not going to get the 10 Republicans, so we should make the best of the one guaranteed reconciliation vehicle we have left and just shove through like a $4 trillion package with the hard and the you know soft infrastructure together. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the idea of breaking them up does kind of worry me. Like, let's say, even let's assume a very hypo, you know, an extreme hypothetical that you are actually going to get Republicans to support anything that both parties can agree on, on hard infrastructure. I mean, again, that is a, that's a big leap of faith, but as a hypothetical, let's assume that. Um, And let's assume you get 10, an even bigger assumption. Okay. My concern there would be you get uh, Republicans able to say, yep, we, we got you all these roads, kind of, you know, get them, allow them to participate in what is, you know, pretty popular stuff jobs, roads, broadband, all this kind of stuff. Um, Let them participate in that and let Democrats kind of go it on their own on what I think will be a harder sell. Maybe it shouldn't be a harder sell. Um, I think that stuff's popular, the caring economy stuff. But that is is just going to be a harder sell. You know, Everybody agrees we want good roads. That's kind of universal. As you said, even the even a relatively recent Republican Party pretty gung-ho on 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 infrastructure. So I worry that you have a situation where, you know, the Republicans get to get on board for the easy stuff, for the stuff that's really popular and really visible, and Democrats have to kind of take the stuff, you know, take the harder uh, the harder lift on their own. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Right. And that's and that's that's not even um, that's not even getting into what would you have to give up on hard infrastructure to get any Republicans to come on board. I mean, my understanding is basically not surprisingly, they're basically saying no tax mm-hmm. cut. You know, no tax hikes at all. We won't support any tax hikes. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a non-starter. I mean, if that, you know, and and, I mean, God forbid you end up with a situation. I mean, I can't imagine they would allow this, but if like, you know, let them pay for this, you know, let them vote for the spending and let Democrats come back later and raise money to fund it. You know, there's just but but there is also, I would imagine, a really tough dance that Biden and Schumer have to do because to get 50 votes on anything, they are needing to rely probably on seven or eight Democratic senators who want who really want that bipartisan bill. That's really important to them. For whatever reason, it's important to them. It's really important to them. Um, so it's, you know, they're going to have to they're going to have to finesse it. Why are they since they have not? Why is he focusing on the caring economy stuff in this speech when it seems like hard infrastructure is going to go first? And that is so popular. I, I don't I don't get that. I, I don't why why wouldn't he kind of wrap himself in that or wrap himself in both? I don't get why they're why they're focusing on that. Well, I think piece, a part of it is that he's just unveiling the caring one tonight. So we don't necessarily know as of now if that is gonna be the heart of the speech. You know, there is a chance that he could kind of be like, here's infrastructure part one and here's infrastructure part two, but the 
so far, I think, you know, there's been a focus on part two because we don't know what it is yet. But I do want to wrap in um, a reader question we got because we are kind of running out of time and it's related to what we're talking about right now. Uh, This is from Tim who says, do you think legislation is being rushed through Congress right now without a clear understanding of the details because of the pandemic emergency or because Democrats fear losing one of the chambers of Congress in 2022? And it's interesting because I think this question kind of directly flows into what we're talking about right now, which is, you know, when I was prepping for the pod, I realized that I wasn't even aware of what part of infrastructure he was going to talk about tonight. Like, I don't think I even knew that this was, this event was going to be the unveiling of part two. And that does say something because it shows you how much Democrats are keeping things close to the vest right now. Um, because it is a little bit confusing. They announced hard infrastructure. Now, this is the unveiling of soft, but hard hasn't passed. And we still don't know a lot about the hard infrastructure or where negotiations are. And Dick Durbin came out just yesterday, you know, advocating for it being put together instead of two. So they clearly haven't even hammered out that detail yet. And I think it's a bit of a commentary on what Tim is asking here, which I think, yes, I think pandemic emergency was a huge part of getting the relief bill through fast. Um, and I think losing the Chamber of Congress, uh, losing the House probably is also a huge part of this. They realize they've got like a one year window to get this done before people start campaigning. But I also think this is a byproduct of the fact that right now, Democrats mostly, mostly only have to keep their caucus together to get stuff passed. That won't be true when we're out of reconciliation vehicles, but that's true right now. And I think we've seen how different that looks on the public facing side when all your negotiations are internal and when you're all batting for the same team. So you don't really have a ton of impetus to, you know, leak things to the press or to have these fights kind of out in public, Um, which is also, I think, a commentary on the kind of remarkable unification democratic leadership has managed to achieve so far. The fact that we've only kind of had these little, splinter arguments on things like, you know, the salt tax from the New York congression uh, and like little, little things like that. But on the whole, we don't know a lot about what's going on. And I think that kind of speaks, it's what we've talked about before, kind of the opaque sense of this. And I think that just shows kind of how much inter inter Democrat dealing is happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I would push back a little on Tim's point about, you know, rushing through and we don't really know what's in there. I think broadly speaking, we know what's we know what's in these bills or like, you know, we don't know yet on the carrying con, but we will. Right. I mean, they're going to announce it and, and they've already talked about, you know, on the infrastructure plan. So I don't think it's a sense like you're rushing things through and like, oh, we didn't even know what we passed. I think we do know it. it, it these, these bills are so big, it's a little hard for the press to come. I mean, you saw that with the relief bill. I mean, the whole thing was there. Right, but there was so much, and, and a lot of it was so technical. It, it's it's a little hard to uh, explain it all. Um, I think it's we basically know what's there. I don't think there's a huge amount of disagreement among Democrats on what you want to do, what you want to what you want to spend on. But there is this, as you said, th- there's this. There is a basic understanding that Democrats are going to have to do this lift on their own, regardless. And that means they they need literally unanimity. Everybody has to agree on something. Um, and so a lot of the a lot of the action, a lot of the kinetics is, you, you know, as you said, stuff in the background. And so the politics of it is is um, is opaque. But that's not the same as as the policies being opaque or the spending, what's being spent on opaque. But back to Tim's question, I think it is 100%. Democrats see this two-year cycle as, if not existential for the future of the country and the future of the Democratic Party, pretty close, that there are structural factors that make them very pessimistic, that they will continue to be in power. Um, after the, after two years, I mean, uh, almost certainly Biden will be president for f- for four years, but in terms of uh, you know controlling Congress, and they think 
given what happened under Trump, uh, given the trends in, um, in, in national politics, they need to max out quickly to have a hope of both changing and saving the country, but also changing the political economic trajectory of the country. You need to basically show very quickly and very tangibly, this is what government can do. This is, this is why government is important. And I think that's it. I think they think they have kind of one last chance um, as, as hyperbolic and, and, and extreme as that sounds. And, and to a great extent, I think they're right. The, the only question to me is that uh, there are all these other things, particularly a, a, you know, a voting rights bill, that you kind of also need to 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 get through in this in this you know this narrow window, and uh, it seems very questionable whether that's going to be possible because of the filibuster, and you can't do that through you know you can't do that through budget re- reconciliation. So on that grim note, I think we'll wrap things yes. up. Do you have two tasks for you, our beloved listeners? One, send us in your questions, no dumb questions. Also, even if there's something you want us to talk about, that's not necessarily a question. That's fine too. And two, Biden's big speech tonight. Uh, Senator Tim Scott will do the Republican rebuttal afterwards. Josh Kavinsky and I will be heading our coverage team of that at TPM. So stay with us through the speeches. We'll be live blogging and uh, your go-to source for information tonight. Right. And remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Thanks, everyone. Later. Later.